In his 2014 Journal of Sport Management article titled, Sport Without Management, scholar Joshua Newman argues that if scholars in sport management are to look beyond the sport as industry hegemony that looms over scholarship in the field, they must first recognize that, quote, the study of sport in the academy is not merely a product of the sport market or the marketplace of ideas, end quote, but is rather shaped by the dialectical relationship between scholars and the industry. That is, sport management scholars, quote, have made and continue to make the sport industry and the study of that industry just as it makes our pedagogical and intellectual work, end quote. This shift in focus, he contends, can help scholars to reimagine their approach to conceptualizing and studying sport and critique dominant neoliberal assumptions that the accelerated expansion of the global sport industry is a natural byproduct of market-based forces. But what does this critical approach to sport management entail? What does it mean to think and reimagine sport in its relation to our present context of neoliberal capitalism? What is the importance in reimagining sport as less this kind of natural outcome of the marketplace and more possibly a site of joyful energy? In this episode of Somatic, we talk with Dr. Josh Newman about such topics and his thoughts on why it remains important for those in the sport management field to stay critical of the ways our research is corporatized and structured to satisfy the marketplace. this episode, you heard parts of a recent conversation I had with Dr. Joshua Newman, professor of media, politics, and cultural studies in the Department of Sport Management at Florida State University. Dr. Newman is the author of the books Embodying Dixie, Studies in the Body Pedagogics of Southern Whiteness, and Sport, Spectacle, and NASCAR Nation, Consumption and the Cultural Politics of Neoliberalism. Dr. Newman has also served as president of the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport. So my name is Josh Newman, and I am a professor of media and cultural studies uh, at Florida State University in the Department of Sport Management. Uh, and most of my training is in physical cultural studies, sociology of sport, with a little bit of um, political economy. After I finished at Maryland, I taught at Towson University for about three and a half years, and then moved to New Zealand and taught there for two and a half years at the University of Otago. And then after my stint in New Zealand, I moved here to Tallahassee, Florida, and I've been here ever since. As a graduate of the University of Maryland's Physical Cultural Studies program myself, I've been influenced in many ways by the written scholarship of Dr. Newman. For example, his study, along with Dr. Michael Giardina, of the cultural politics of neoliberalism as it relates to the world of NASCAR. The politics of race and ethnicity seen through sporting mascots such as Colonel Rebel at the University of Mississippi. His exploration of autoethnography as a method of cultural analysis. Recently, however, I've become particularly influenced by his writings on the epistemological and ontological underpinnings of the sport industry and the field of sport management itself. And in his writings, what he points to is a way of denaturalizing our understandings of sport and its relation to both the economy and larger society. In a way, it's a way of seeing sport as a construct that is shaped by historical, social, economic, and political conditions. 
and what Dr. Newman suggests is a pathway to a more critical sport management field that furthers work scholars have already done within that field. There's a, a pretty significant segment of the sport management scholarly community that's trying to do the same sorts of things that we would ver that people who identify as PCS or sociology of sport would very much um, align with, very much. And if I'm being frank, um, they are far more practical and in a good way. Like they're and there's it's very easy to criticize some of the work that's being done in sport management as being too utopic, maybe even in some ways um, a little bit too uh, you know sort of. Um, I don't know what the word would be. I don't want to say idealistic, but um, some people in the critical space as I work in would say it's a little bit naive. But they're on the ground doing this stuff. I mean, they're working with NGOs, they're working with government agencies, and in some cases they're actually working with private firms to really try to utilize sport towards some positive social ends. We might not always agree with those, but I think sport management's ability to mobilize has actually been greater than PCS or sociology of sport, um, and that of course uh, is a pretty broad statement. I know there's a lot of people doing an amazing amount of work in sociology of sport and then PCS as well. Um, but I think we could we could benefit from some cross-disciplinary dialogue um, in terms of the strategies that they've been able to utilize to do different types of things um, when it comes to sport for peace, sport for development, um, community development, these types of things uh, versus uh, some of the things we're doing, which. I think I would align, obviously, on both sides with um, if we can utilize this to, to bring about positive social change, then I think that's something we should be exploring. In our talk, what Dr. Newman emphasized is that there's a particular phenomenon in sport and the sport industry that has been shaped by our present context of late capitalism and neoliberal ideology. What's happening in sport management is that there is this um, kind of cross-validation that's happening where what happens in the academy is confirming industrial praxis and I think industrial praxis is confirming what's happening in the academy uh, universities are driven by things these days like credit hours graduate credit hours retention um, and these types of things well a sport management program is a sexy Thing to add to a university. It's a sexy major for an undergraduate, an 18, 19 year old who's deciding what they want to do with their lives. Um, and it can be justified when you say, hey, the market is this and these kinds of things. There's all these like, like um, optics that kind of come into play that then allow for the proliferation of, of this enterprise. But I think one of the things I've been really kind of trying to work through is how in our teaching in sport management and in our research in sport management, we give sport this natural quality there are these kind of you might say like conditions of emergence where we've created this is a very Foucauldian sort of way to look at it but we've created this kind of this positif this sort of like apparatus almost the scientific apparatus which already kind of names its own realities where you would say things like fans really enjoy going to the game and if we can have more of X Y and Z then we can get more fans and we can get more money and we can you know grow the industry and things like that um, and that's the sort of research side of it but that then informs the teaching side of it which informs um, the I guess the bigger kind of existential questions about why we have sport why we have sport management why we would have sport management majors why don't we just have business majors or whatever and I think the 
this positive sort of the work being done in that has become quite confirmatory. So you have the the scientists telling the practitioners that the business needs to be run in a particular way to maximize different types of outcomes, and then the positive outcomes kind of manifest in in how. Um, you know, ticket sales and the industry and its growth, the growth of the sector and things like that. So where I'm going with all that is that we become key figures in the reproduction, the social reproduction of a certain type of kind of order of things, a certain way of knowing the world, and in this case of knowing sport. Right. And that folks who know Marx or know Foucault or whoever would go, oh, I kind of get what you're saying. I can read, read in between the lines. But I don't think that um, people working in sport management, even if they've read or Foucault or Marx or whoever, I don't think they would actually balk at anything I've just said. They would just, uh, they would pull it back a few levels and they would probably start with, um, this is the way the way I always talk about it. The, the difference between what I do and what a sport man, a traditional sport mar- uh, marketer or sport um, kind of management person would do starts in my mind actually with politics. It doesn't start with paradigm. It's not because I'm qualitative and they're quantitative. It doesn't even start with theory. It's not because I've read, um, you know, Judith Butler and they they read I don't know, some Paul DiMaggio or something like that. It actually starts, I think, with um, what it is that you think this thing, the sport, the bodies moving, social, physical interactions, and things like that. What do they exist in the world to do, and what can be done, you know, within that space? It's that to me. That's the starting point. Everything kind of comes back to politics. What is it that's being assumed in this field? Because it's it's an incredibly um, significant field. It, you know, there's more than 400 programs. There's um, the journals, uh, sport management reviews impact factor is about three and a half now, which is, I know it's not huge in terms of science or nature, but it, it's pretty big when you look at its, its other kind of peer journals. Um, sport man- uh, journal of sport management has a, 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 a very strong reputation internationally and so on. So what we were interested in is what are the kind of values and epistemological and even ontological assumptions that are guiding scholars when they do research under the umbrella of sport management, when they teach under that sort of same umbrella. And so in the dissertations that you talk, in the work my students have done in recent years, particularly um, Matt Horner, Chris McLeod, and and, um, Matt Hausen, I think they're just trying to use their work not just to call into question those assumptions that are being made by the key scholars and the most, you know, in those most cited uh, research products, but I think more than anything, we're really interested in, like, what does that do to sport? What does that do to how we think about sport? What does that do to an 18-year-old who's told that they can have a career working for the Atlanta Braves or the Baltimore Orioles? Because the, the thing, the, these things are all working together in a particular rhythm um, in a way which I think is starting to crystallize the nature of sport, what we should know about it, why we should know what we know and what we can do with it. Those are all things which then I think articulate back to the academy more generally. And if we sort of take all these things for granted, they become, again, the, you know, the standard by which um, the accrediting agencies 
you know, uh, uh, sort of approved programs, faculty are hired, doc students are being trained, all these things. Well, now we kind of have a, a certain knowledge economy, which is not just reproducing the next generation of, of labor force in that industry, but I think is really working even more significantly on the plane of ideology where you have teachers standing up saying, you just got to go out and give everything you, you can. You got to work weekends and nights for free. You even have to pay our university um, a lot of money to get your foot in the door, to get this experience. And it's only then that you might have a chance to work in this industry for below kind of market wages and under not such great conditions and all these things. So I think like something like Matt's dissertation is trying to hold us in sport management, the faculty, the programs, the accrediting agencies, and so on, accountable to, to these things. In his 2014 Journal of Sport Management article titled, Sport Without Management, Dr. Newman tried to address the following important issue. The sport management field continues to grow and expand with an increasing number of sport management programs across the United States. The various social science and sociocultural disciplines or sub-disciplines that are under this broad umbrella of the academic study of sport. So disciplines like the sociology of sport, sport history, sport philosophy, physical education. Those disciplines are increasingly being incorporated in, replaced by, or subordinated to sport management programs. And in our age of global capitalism, I think it's important that we think about and unpack the assumptions that often underlie this phenomenon due to the context that we find ourselves in. Think about the way many sport management scholars have, using the words of Dr. Newman, quote, given their research and teaching over to assumptions and promulgations of sport as industry, the athlete as commodity, the team as brand, the fan as consumer, and the sport facilitator as manager, end quote. Some sport management scholars point to the accelerated expansion of the global sport industry as a natural byproduct of the free marketization of sport, while others, perhaps more critically, point to the global marketization and commercialization of sport as a product and symptom of the rise in hegemonic dominance of neoliberal ideology. Now, these were the things Dr. Newman tried to address by his article. How can we rethink the underlying assumptions of sport management? and see the rise of the global sport industry in relation to as a product of political, economic, and social forces, and see sport management itself as something that is shaped by political, economic, and social forces. I think with the sport without management, I remember when I wrote that, I was actually on our, we were on our way, Ryan King-White, Kyle Buns, and I were on our way on a road trip that somehow ended in Seattle for NASM. And I just remember thinking, I need to write a piece which helps me anchor the critique to um, the kind of politics and the epistemological um, and ontological uh, sort of bases of, of physical cultural studies, but that I could hand to a, a, a sport management graduate student who is fairly well you know, sort of immersed in, in, in the, the, the um, the sport management, kind of traditional sport management definitions and whatnot, and give them a sense of how we might want to question some of these things. And so the funny thing is, this is an aside, I have gotten more positive feedback from that article than any other article that I've ever written. And I expected, um, and I've actually gotten more negative feedback on something like the, the book I wrote about racism in Mississippi. Um, and I think what's 
interesting about this is most of the positive feedback actually comes from sport management folks, not sociologists. I haven't really ever, maybe you'd be a sociologist who sort of had something positive to say about sport without management, but it's almost always come from folks inside who highly identify with NASM. And I think even Earl Ziegler wrote me a really long email and he said, look, this is what I've been trying to do for years. And Earl Ziegler's like the founder of NASM. And um, so it's there actually, like there is, a, there, there is this sort of counter kind of voice within that field that's, that's there. You, you, you mentioned um, folks like Wendy Frisbee or Sally Shaw. Um, there's a lot of people who are trying to do this type of work and so it resonates with that sort of thing. Um, but the reason I wrote them, uh, I was probably kind of pissed off and I just wanted to sort of um, challenge things. I think with the sport, the sociology one, probably the same thing. I think my constant struggle with um, NAS and with the sociology sport field is I think we have such amazing, bright, brilliant, super careful and well-considered scholars. It's, it's, it's as good as it gets. There's nowhere I'd rather be than sort of NAS. But I think the thing that NAS scholars always are kind of coming back to and struggling with is how our politics and our work can contribute to actual sort of measurable change, right? And so the conviction's there, and we all, um, nobody agrees on anything in NAS, but everybody's trying to do the best they can to do the right thing, to, to make the you know, kind of world a better place or whatever it might be in their writing and in their teaching. And you can see that, you can see it. But somehow a lot of that gets sort of almost self-contained or almost tautological where we start to sort of define the mission by the critique. And I think that the, the critique has to play a role in the mission, but the mission could be something beyond just the critique, right? It could sort of end with a, with a, a podcast, which maybe some, a few people read. It could, it could end with um, you know, some sort of initiative out in a community or working with members of a community and there's lots of good, there's lots of amazing things happening within NAS, um, I think, that, that, that re- represent that. Um, so it's probably just a call to arms toward, as you said, sort of the, the, if praxis sort of means, it has like two different aspects of it. I think one is sort of, um, you know, more about the sort of idea than the world of ideas and theory and things like that. But the other is actually on the ground practice doing something in the world. And I think it was probably a call to arms to try to encourage scholars to take all the good work that's happening in our journals and in our thinking and our presentations and really try to imagine ways forward for that to kind of express its, itself on the ground. And that's not to discount it was happening and there's so many different, there's a hundred scholars I can name right now in NAS who are working their butts off in communities trying to make things you know better in some way. Um, but just to kind of keep, keep that up. What Dr. Newman is talking about in his article is the need to kind of denaturalize some of the underlying assumptions of the global expansion of the sport industry, the expansion of sport management programs, through the approach and uh, mission statement, if you will, of sport management. I think sometimes people and scholars tend to naturalize the processes that are underlying phenomena like this sort of naturalize the expansion of, uh, for instance, sport management programs as simply a natural byproduct of the market, the marketplace. And what Dr. Newman is pointing to is a critical approach that sees the dialectical relation between scholars 
and the discipline, scholars in the industry, people in the industry, the industry and context. And that's the question, context in history. How is it that we can understand this phenomenon of sport management and the underlying idea of sport management in relation to context, political, economic, social, cultural context, context of power. And that's what he talks about in our, in our talk. If there's one thing that we butt heads about here, it's about context and about history. It's about the role that a particular sort of social or in this case kind of sporting kind of formation plays within a given economic or political or social context. Um, we do a, a lot of students here do a lot of work on things like ethnic marketing. And so they will look at how they can control marketing practices to better uh, influence consumer behavior. So how do we get more Asian Americans to watch baseball or to buy hot dogs at football games or something like that? And so then they'll look to culture, right? So they'll say, well, what is it about the cultural backgrounds and the cultural identities of these people that we can sort of commodify or we can certainly um, help mediate the, 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 the sort of commercial process? The challenge is, is when somebody like me sticks their hand up and says, okay, well, hold on, how are you defining, who gets to define somebody's identity as being sort of Latino or Latino or Asian American, and do they put the American after Asian, is there, the, you know, these kinds of things. Um, those things, I think, always open up the question of context and of his history. You have to sort of now work through, um, and of subjectivity, right, of how any individual who walks into that space is going to bring a certain kind of life experience. There, there are certain politics and power relations that are working with them and against them that are different than the next person that walks through. So this sport management's priority seems to always, always be on um, kind of generalizability, prediction, control, and kind of ultimately, I think, potential. So how, for example, can we grow the enterprise? What's the potential of Major League Soccer to capture a certain market share? These kinds of things. That's almost the opposite of what I would be doing on mostly a daily basis. I don't want to generalize. I'm not really trying to predict or control. Uh, you know what I mean? And I think that's that's the gap. And um, so for us, that's the struggle is to always, but that struggle doesn't just manifest itself at the level of kind of epistemology or ontology, where we say, hold on, why are you, why are you running a t-test or um, a, a regression or um, a structural equation modeling to, to answer this question? Why did you use surveys instead of interviews? That's the kind of technical side of it, but I think the bigger challenge is in trying to sort out why would someone who's getting paid by the state to spend 40 hours a week writing and thinking and teaching be trying to generalize, predict, control people who are trying to go and participate in or consume or engage with this thing, sport, right? Versus something different. So for us, it would be to kind of use that space to kind of promote social inclusion, to maybe sort of resist certain types of political subjugation, to, you know, uh, to maybe develop communities on their terms, these kinds of things. These are the things that um, I think always tend to be where the, the, the breaks happen and always where I think we'll have challenges as we move forward if these, if if sport management becomes the thing that sports sociologists sort of have to kind of anchor themselves to, or PCS folks have to anchor themselves to, those are the questions that are always going to be on the table, or certainly in the, in the, near, in the future.
what Dr. Newman talked about um, in our interview is how this approach, this dialectical understanding of sport and the sport industry and sport management has led for him at least at Florida State University to see the connections between some of the substantial critiques that you find in disciplines like the sociology of sport with how they can be practically applied combined with uh, sport management research with sports management initiatives as a way of expanding or aiding communities to see to see scholars as members of communities to see scholars as having in many ways a responsibility to contribute to the recreation and sporting opportunities of communities and he talked a little bit about some of the programs and initiatives that they've done as a result down at Florida State. Uh, one of our students here, Kyle Buns, he worked for these water charities in London and he went to, to Malawi and went to sort of um, uh, to all these sort of folk places in the, in the global south and immediately I think a lot of sociology people would say oh hold on if he's working with these different agencies and he's working with communities on the ground. That's some messy business there. Here's the white Western American kind of work, trying to work. Um, and I get those critiques, but I think there are some measurable outcomes from his work that actually, I think if you went into those communities and asked the folks, you know, did that collaboration with Kyle kind of work for you? They would probably say yes. Um, the center I run here, we work at the, uh, Homeless Emergency Services Center, we work at the Senior Center, we do yoga at the Women's Prison, uh, we do stuff with the Florida Disabled Outdoors Association. Um, we have usually between six and different, six and eight different, six to eight different agencies that we work with. And it's super challenging. And the last thing I want to do is go and create problems or harm or stress for folks in any of these sites. But there's services that these folks don't get. The state doesn't, doesn't provide them, and there's no private sector kind of agencies that are going to provide these services. Um, physical activity, sport programs, all these things. We, we play Wii Fit and, and like do all kinds of things. Um, but I think uh, there's a line there between that sort of independent, maverick, cavalier critic who can go around, see the world, express the critique of that world in their writing and in their um, presentations and books and have a good life. And I think it's an incredibly um, privileged place to be, actually, to be able to do that. Um, and I've lived in that space for most of my professional career. But um, I do also believe that we have some responsibility if we're going to kind of go around, go, go to NASCAR races or go to Ole Miss football games or whatever, to not just kind of go and take and sort of go, oh, look, I got some pictures and I got some good, good sound bites I can put in my book about, you know, from this guy who's obviously doesn't like people of color or whatever. But there, there is a, a world there that we are not just kind of critiquing, observing and critiquing and sort of taking from, but I think there's the world that is there that we can also kind of work within and not to impose ourselves on that world, but to acknowledge that we're part of communities that I live in Tallahassee, Florida, which has a lot of problems and I can either keep driving past them every day and kind of roll my window up or I can actually sort of kind of do my best to work in that, those different spaces to sort of, you know, try to not make things any worse than I probably already have. So for me, that's kind of my approach to what we do here. And I think our students, um, we're out there when we, we have like thousands and thousands of hours 
each semester where we're out in these group with these in these communities doing things. If I go to the Carney Center, the Homeless Emergency Services Center right now, we have some folks that are there and they have actually built good relationships with people. And the people there, I think, genuinely look forward to kind of the interactions that have been created over time. Um, we sort of partnered with some of the clients at the, at the, at the Homeless Emergency Center, Services Center to do this bicycle initiative. And we got grants and that's people could say that's selling out and all this kind of stuff. We got a NASM grant. But we get these grants to to um, build these kind of bike stations because they move the homeless shelter outside the city center really far away from the library and most of the public service things and the bus station. So the folks who the clients who um, have to sort of take up um, you know uh, residence for a period of time at this emergency services center were really displaced, and there was no way for them to get back to the things they needed. And so we were like, okay, what can we do here? And and the the folks who who were at the center. Um, you know, sort of said, hey, if we could actually just get access to bikes and that work, worked, that would really make a big deal. And so we created um, a partnership with the bike house here. They give us the bikes. Uh, the, we have the stations where we can maintain the bikes, flat tires, all that kind of stuff. And we run classes and all that. In terms of the mobility of the folks, um, the clients at the, the Carney Center, I think we've seen huge you know, improvement. And now they're able to at least to get to the library to access the internet to apply for jobs or to you know, get their, their, their health care sort of issues um, worked through. I'm not saying we're saving the world or anything, but if we just said, hey, look, homelessness sucks, um, capitalism sucks, um, let me write it in some very kind of esoteric and clever way and I'll get tenure. Um, we could do that and we could sort of be very proud of ourselves for being clever boys and girls. Um, but I don't know that that actually would do anything in terms of enhancing those folks' mobility and, you know, to get gain access to certain services. In conclusion for this episode, it's worthwhile to return to the conclusion and kind of hopeful statement that's within Dr. Newman's article. And he talks about how there are scholars who would likely celebrate the marketization of sport, point to transformations of the working market, with individual consumers increasingly emancipated from uh, bureaucracy and state interference, we're now free to choose what to buy, where to play. Sport job creators can now expand the industry without any artificial political intervention. But Dr. Newman talks about how, quote, sport-like society is competitive, but competition alone is neither sport nor society's reason for being. It is a product of political and economic formations, such as capitalism. Sport in the first instance, as in the last, quote, emerges not as a market entity but as a cultural formation and so what he argues is if we look back into the past and sometimes ancient understandings of the body the active body we can rethink sport as quote a site of joy and pleasure this idea that the market did not create but the market found ways to capitalize upon that joy and pleasure derived from sport and physical activity. So what Dr. Newman argues is we should teach and research 
toward a more joyful sporting condition. And we talked about this a bit in the interview. I was trying to think of what the common ground that I could communicate this message to sport management readers would be. And I don't, I don't think it's something like competition. I could give two craps about competition. I think it's probably kind of gross in most contexts, right? But, um, and I, so I was thinking, what is it the essential thing that connects us? If we had this Venn diagram, where would there be the overlap? And I think there is some thing about the physical body in motion and, and that's in varying degrees, uh, varying sort of definitions of ability. But I think even, you know, taking that on board, that there's something about human beings using their bodies, and this is very kind of anthropocentric, but using their bodies to create something, whether it's a goal in a soccer game or, you know, just to, my daughter can throw a ball now. Um, and that's kind of exciting for her, right? And so... When she throws the ball and she gets excited, that's something which I don't think is a product of any managerial practice or any sociological kind of critique. There's something that's kind of there that we've been drawn into. And so it's probably the thing also that in some ways draws fans who have strong fan identities or undergrads who want to major and, and then eventually work in the industry or um, in all these different things. Um, we're, we're bounded or connected to that I think joyful, almost kind of, I don't want to say cathartic, but kind of a ludic, expressive use of the body. And so I think if you take that not just as the outcome of, say, sport management, or even as we don't say, hey, we're going to organize sport to, to get more of that, to get more ludic, ludus. But you work the other way around, this is almost like what Heisinga or Kawa would say, but if you take take it the other way around and you say that's the basis upon which we could start to kind of organize our the study of this thing organize the, the 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 kind of administration of this thing how do we maximize that so how do we instead of maximizing revenues or hotel bed nights how do we maximize that joyful expressive element of sport that i think we could start to see our measurables and our tech our technologies and our research and our practices in a different light, one which doesn't just prioritize whether it's publications or, you know, market share or whatever, but instead you're, you're holding a tournament to bring kids together to have lots of fun. It's a pretty simple idea. I think if you take that to say, okay, what about in our research and how we express our research, the fact that you guys put this together and you integrate so many different, like, you know, music and there's all these kinds of things. That's expressive and playful, and it's kind of, you know, it, it sort of in some ways aligns with that same sort of idea. It's not a traditional, predictable way of creating this type of dialogue. I think that might be a better way forward for all of us, certainly than um, the more kind of pro-capitalist, sort of generalizable, predictable control model that's kind of taking shape um, these days in, in the academy and in the industry. The question is, how can we put this idea, this understanding of sport as a site of joyful energy into practice? And how can it be combined or mobilized through quantitative, qualitative methods? How can it be realized within the field? That's a good question. I think so, yes. Um, but it's, it's, that's about one of the most challenging things that, that we're trying to do here. Um, 
we've done research, for example, where we use um, GPS or no, uh, G, what is it? GIS? Yeah, GIS. Um, kind of mapping, and we look, for example, at mobility patterns of who plays where, and where do we see kind of segregation emerging. So you can look at city block data, and you can say, okay, here's a predominantly white middle-class neighborhood, here's a predominantly black working-class neighborhood, something like that. Where do these folks go to play? Where do these folks go to play? Do these is where are the fields set up? Are the teams at those fields segregated? Are they not segregated? It's all kind of the type of, I guess, um, instrumentation that I would have balked at a few years ago. I don't want to be tracking people and numericizing and graphically representing and all this kind of stuff. But you can take that data and you can go to the city and you can say, hey, um, city parks and rec folks, this particular baseball league that's in this part of the town is your most segregated. And we think this is why, because you've actually, what you've done is you've organized your teams in a particular way, which kind of promotes certain segregation practices. Funny enough, when you have the soccer, you actually have really integrated teams. Let's see if you can take that approach down here. And so you can, I think, utilize those kinds of um, research methods almost as a strategy for doing some of the things. I think numbers can be an incredibly powerful way to represent things. Um, but it comes at a cost because you're often generalized, you know, you're often sort of transforming lived experience and plurality and complexity for a three or a four or a six on a, you know, on a diagram or whatever. So you, you have to measure whether that trade-off's worth it. If I'm talking to a city commissioner or to the mayor, sometimes it's worth it. I could, I could give a, a, a beautiful account of one child's experience when they walked to the softball fields that day and they didn't feel safe and, you know, all these kinds of things that usually doesn't motivate policymakers to make changes. But I can stand in front of the city commission and I can show them a bunch of diagrams with you know, GIS data, or I could, um, we did a survey, we were building a park in downtown Tallahassee. The, 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 the government was, it was like multi, multi-million dollar park. Um, and we did, our center ran this sort of survey and it had like two or 3,000 respondents. And we were kind of asking, what do you want in the park? We want to make sure we went to the libraries, we talked to people on the street in the neighborhoods where we didn't think there would be like maybe as much representation by an online survey. Get all the data back, and it shows that, um, that certain amenities are more likely to be... We could then trace it out to uh, who wanted certain amenities within certain neighborhoods so that basically rich white folks weren't getting what they want. And we can link all that together and make some real policy recommendations, and they actually took them up. And the park, I mean, anybody wants to come to Tallahassee, Tallahassee was named All-America City last year because of this park. And it's, it's an amazing place where people from the south side of the city, which has a much lower socioeconomic profile, um, significant overrepresentation of African-American uh, residents, the north side, which is the, has the kind of opposite profile, they're all there and it's working. And in some ways you would say it's not... If I'd have gone around and done sort of ethnographic work, or if I'd have gone around and kind of done some critical discourse analysis, I would not have, we wouldn't have been able to, to communicate to the policymakers the way we were able to. But we have a playground that's made out of kind of natural like features, so like logs kids can play on and slide down and all this stuff. And it's packed. There's this water feature thing that's packed. If I go down there today, it'll be completely packed out. And um, that wouldn't, so. Did I have to? Did we have to make some pretty serious compromises, um, kind of paradigmatically, to get that done? Absolutely. Um, but I kind of like the park, and if anybody you know, so and I think I think most people would kind of say, oh, I think that worked. Yeah. So. <laughs>
Hi everyone, it's Oliver, the uh, one of the co-founders of Somatic. Uh, just coming in here to wrap everything up at the end of the episode. Um, another amazing episode uh, that Sam's put together for us here. Uh, so first of all, I just want to appreciate, uh, put out some appreciation for him and everything that he's done getting this episode together. Also, I want to say a big thank you uh, to Dr. Joshua Newman. Obviously, um, his insights were the core of what this episode was, and, and we really thank him for taking the time uh, to talk to us. Uh, I also want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, we've had a small hiatus just while we've been uh, working on some other things and getting some projects wrapped up in our day jobs. Uh, but we hope to be back to it a little bit uh, here a bit more regularly over the next few months. So we hope you join us on the next episode. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us on Twitter at Somatic Podcast. You can head over and read the accompanying blog post to this episode at somaticpodcast.com. And you can always reach out to us about ideas for projects to work on uh, by dropping us an email at somaticpodcast at gmail.com otherwise it's just left for me to say this has been somatic <laughs>